Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Really excited that you've tuned in on this holiday edition. We have Alan Levine with us today. And I mean us, I really mean me. Had this great opportunity to sit down with Alan and talk with him about metaphors, the power of stories, the narrative arc. We talked about his Odyssey road trip and how all of this just kind of collages together to create a framework for us in education, no matter what we're teaching, for us to approach our curriculum and our subject matter with this very powerful approach to story. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. It was a ton of fun for me to sit down with Alan and have this conversation with him. Thanks very much for tuning in. Grab some eggnog, have a seat, maybe by the fire with a blanket and enjoy. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. It is a good day today. I get to sit down with uh, Alan Levine. Alan, how you doing? Good morning to you. I'm doing really good, Tim. Good to uh, good to hear you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the first time that we, you and I, we had a chance to sit down just mono and mono and uh, have have some time to talk about what's going on and uh, what we're looking at and what we're seeing down the pipe, so to speak. And I got a couple questions for you and it's just a, a good time to have a conversation. That's right. There is this thing that happens, you know, you interact in, in you know, social media or across blogs and, mm-hmm. and, um, and then it's like, um, I would be like, it's great to like meet you for the first time. And then you, this has happened so many times. I keep saying, I shouldn't say that. And someone says, yeah, we met at this conference or something. Yeah. So, if we have met before and I forgot, but I don't think we have. No, not physically. No. Yeah. So the first time we met, um, was at OER 19 okay. in Phoenix. Uh, Clint Lalonde was doing some, that's right. Some virtually connecting. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. And I was in the background and yeah. uh, Yeah. It was the first time we met. So that was cool. Very cool. I miss conferences. Do you? Um, that's funny because I I have kind of like this quasi feeling about conferences, like Mm -hmm. as a modality, like some things are really, it's, it's all the stuff that happens outside. Um, that I miss. And, uh, you know, I got to go to a fair bit and I I Mm -hmm. went to them around the world and I got kind of tired. And so I was like, I'm actually not minding the travel part. Um, but then again, it is great to go to a place like Phoenix where I I used to live in Arizona. Um, so, which is weird that I wasn't there, Uh, (laughs) but, um, yes and no, Like, like there's something about the conference format that works. Mm-hmm. Um, by the, the constraints and the, um, the, what is set up to provide and the interaction and the intensity. Um, and then some things it's just like, sometimes like, Oh, I'm going to go in a room and watch someone talk to me. Right. Yeah. I always felt that there was this big disconnect at the end, right. Where it's like you got 20 minutes or 22 minutes to listen to somebody. And then you're in a lineup of 30 people that you just want to ask one question. Cause that's all they have time for. And it's like, ah, I just yeah. wish we could sit down in the, in the courtyard and have a, have an espresso or an IPA or something and just, just talk. Right. Yeah. And then you're like, Oh my God, I can't ask that person a question. <laughs> Especially when you're, when you're new in the field, like, yeah. you know, I don't know if you remember your first conferences and it I was did. so exciting to be there, but it's just like, who am I? I'm a nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person's up on the stage. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah. And then as you, 
move along in your career, if you get a chance to go and, and you actually see people that you know or you've had interactions with, it just cracks it open quite a bit till, till you get to that part where you have those espressos or, or beers. Yeah. Later. Yeah. I, my, my first OER conference was OER 19 was okay. last year. Okay. And I did feel very much like that, like walking around going, okay, like there's like 500 plus people here and I know three. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it was good though, because I, I met Ken Bauer for the first time, like face to face there. Awesome. Ken's and, one of uh, my favorite people. Oh, he's such a good person. Yeah. And, uh, just so down to like everybody I met was really just really down to earth. And it, it was not, it was not the interaction that I expected because my first conference ever was, I was at a uh, education conference in Toronto, an international one. And yeah, you could tell that there were high end people there. And you know, if you didn't have a PhD behind your name there, mm. <laughs> so and the whole like the whole vendor hall scene was just repulsive oh. to me. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the first time you go, it's like, wow, this is like the state fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then exactly. at some point you realize I got something better to do with my time here. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Good. Hey, I wanted to chat a little bit about uh two questions with you. One was breaking away to create your own path. And there, there's, there's been a few little uh, glimpses into that in some of the tweets and some of the social media stuff I've seen coming from you. And I just wanted to kind of poke that a little bit and ask your opinion on what was it like to break away to create your own path when you did it yourself? And, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. You mean like being unemployed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being voluntarily unemployed. Yeah. Uh, it, it's quite terrifying in many ways, of yeah. course. Um, and, uh, and liberating. So, uh, for me, it, it kind of happened at, at a, a unique opportunity where I'd been working in a position where I felt kind of like that, um, that there were some disagreements with some, with some of the people I worked with and just mm -hmm. like, I think I might need to go without having a place to go. And at the same time, um, um, sadly, my godmother had passed away and, um, I got a, an email a couple months before I made this decision and it mentioned something about being in Aunt Martha's will. And I was like, Aunt Martha's been generous. Maybe she left me enough to buy a new camera. And so it, it was another order of magnitude. And plus I'd been having some savings and I was doing my taxes at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at what I had in, um, in my savings and Aunt Martha's money. And it's like, wait a minute, that's kind of close to my, yearly take-home salary. And oh. I could, I could pursue this dream. I always, um, I didn't travel as a kid at all. Mm -hmm. And, um, I always had this dream of, um, I wanted to go on a long road trip okay. and, and I wanted to go from, I basically started putting on a map, uh, places around the U S and across Canada of oh. people that I'd met like through, through the work and said like, um, I think I just want to say like, Hey, I might be coming through, you know, second week in August. Can I visit? Yeah. And, and I put together a schedule and I just wanted to do, and I ended up doing a 15,000 mile road trip, um, kind of, you know, built upon that. And, um, so I did that for about like, you know, um, eight months or so. And, um, and, and then I got back and, um, and I, I had like, okay, well, that was a great thing. But of course, 
<laughs> have to uh, get back on it. Um, um, and so, yeah, the decision came like, what if, um, I don't know, there was some opportunity um, where someone had said, hey, if you're looking for something, I have a project. And I just started to think and um, I've got good colleagues. Um, uh, I don't know if you know Nancy White, who's like, mm-hmm. she's like the most brilliant person in online facilitation. And, and, and she's been working independently for years. And I had another friend, uh, Mike, who um, he's got this great thing. I'm going to go on so many tangents. So he reel me no, that's in. Good. That's good. Um, you go, baby. <laughs> uh, Mike is a guy I, I, I knew he was, he did work at Northern Arizona university and we both had a background in geology. Um, but he built this great business of working with um, in the U S um, national parks and monuments doing uh, redoing their educational exhibits. Mm. And he kind of, he had a steady stream of work and I talked to both of them about this possibility. And, you know, they gave me some of the practicalities and they told me of the things you worry about and the things mm-hmm. you should plan for. Um, and, and I, I had a little bit of, um, of other sort of stake that first year. Cause unfortunately my mom had passed away. So oh. I got some money from the sale of her house. So that first year I didn't, I really had a, something to lean on. Um, mm-hmm. um, but pretty much, um, I started doing some work and, you know, I didn't want to do anything like, you know, set up promotional stuff. My, my work, I described through my blog and it's not about, Hey, look at me, hire me. It's just, this is what I'm doing. And, mm-hmm. um, really the work came in through my connections and people said, Hey, you know, um, if you got some time or, um, would you be willing to like co-teach this class or we're looking for someone to do a workshop? Um, and it kind of fell together at some point be like, it was workable, um, mm-hmm. to make, uh, an income off it. So, um, it's not easy. And so, yeah. I mean, this time last year, my stuff was really thin and I'm mm-hmm. like looking at what have I, you know, got to do. And, you know, uh, at that point I was putting more feelers out to people. Sure. Um, but really I just been, I've been really fortunate. So how do you count on that? Um, yeah. You know, it was through my, my connections that, that all the, the work came. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when it's working, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when it's not, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and like, <laughs> yeah. what if I can't pay my mortgage in three months? Sure. Sure. How long have you been doing this? Like, how long have you been on your own now? Uh, eight years. It was 2012. Eight. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And so when, when you did it sounds like you just kind of eased into it. Like you, you didn't make a dis- decisive decision. Okay. This is what I'm going to do. It, it, you, you kind of evolved through that process. Were you ever thinking that you would ever, you would go back and do what you were doing if, if this didn't work out or was that not an option for you? Were you just like, I'm going forward in this direction? No, I thought about it as a possibility. And actually um, I, I did um, someone there. I may have missed a part of my own story, but um I think, uh, I, yeah, when I got back from the trip, I started to think like, it'd be really good to do something where I could, um, uh, go to a place for maybe like four months and kind of be like a visiting, you know, whatever, and do the same kind of work, do something more intensely than a workshop. Or um, when you go to a place and do a talk, it's really intense. Yeah. you like get a bunch of fee- people fired up and then you leave, you know? And yeah. so, um, and you don't really get to know a place. Um, mm-hmm. and, and 
Um, you know, probably this did happen for me a couple of years later when Brian Lamb got me a fellowship at mm-hmm. um, TRU and I got to spend four months there and, you know, you get to know people, you get to know the culture, mm-hmm. you actually get to meet students and, mm-hmm. um, and you can, I think, do much more work. So I said, what if I could arrange a series of these? Um, and I reached out to my friend, um, Jim Groom at uh, University of Mary Washington, who I mm-hmm. knew through many things, but through DS 106 and all. And I just said, like, is, is this a possibility? And he says, well, no, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> but he said, look, we have an open position as, um, you know, an instructional technologist. Um, we'll open it up, you know, in December. And, and you know, if you apply for it, you might get it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought about, well, you know, I got to work with, with Jim and, and Martha Burtis and Andy Rush and, and, wow. um, and Tim Owens was there. Just like, this is like a dream team. And so sure. I gave it a try and, and um, went there and it, it, it really was great. I mean, it's, it's a you know, small liberal arts institution and they got to do um, a lot of experimentation. And, um, and honestly, what happened was, you know, I went to Virginia and I grew up on the East coast in Maryland and um, I really missed the West, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. and I got to love Arizona and I, I just didn't like the congestion and, and whatnot of the East coast. And I just kind of felt my heart pulling um, to get back um, to the big skies and, and the open mm-hmm. spaces. It, it sounds kind of corny. Um, yeah. So it was like a great thing. Um, but, you know, it's still really what I had in mind was the thing where I could like go, you know, and maybe that wasn't a realistic idea to think I could keep getting these kind of, you know, three or four months, or even if it was a year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I didn't really know how to make that into a gig. Um, so, you know, I, I basically said to Jim, like, well, you know, I'm really thinking I might go. And he said, well, you know, if you're thinking of going, you know, you shouldn't wait till the end of the year. You probably should just go now before you, you get like in the middle of projects. And you know, I mm-hmm. appreciated his honesty. He, yeah. you know, he probably was reading me as a friend. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know, I, I, I came back and then then I really had to knuckle down because I didn't have you know anything lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I'm trying to remember the order now, like, you know, some projects that came in, but, you know, um, yeah, just that that's when the kind of a little bit of momentum picked up sure. enough that there were ebbs and flows. Um, but it took a couple of years to really feel like, hey, I think this could work for mm-hmm. longer. But, yeah, I did consider like um, when you're in the middle of it, you're still like, wow, you know, it'd be really nice to have like knowing that on the 15th, there was a check coming in <laughs> instead of like on the 15th. Uh, do you mind if I get paid for that work? I did you know, <laughs> not right. a while yeah. ago, yeah. Um, you know, and I am not a really good, like organized person with, with, you know, the paperwork and, sure. and the planning. Um, and, and, you know, and you have to realize when you do this work that, um, you know, the systems that, other people have to go through like, you know, and you mm-hmm. deal with how many different crazy kind of financial things and faxing stuff. And yeah. sometimes they'll, they'll want to pay you this way. And sometimes they need more, um, mm-hmm. you know, and paid for one while you're doing the work for the other, but it, it kind of gels together. Sure. Uh, but you're, you're juggling a lot, obviously. Yeah. If somebody was looking at doing the same kind of thing as you were doing uh, back then, what words of advice would you have for them? I, first of all, it's just 
you know, if you can try it on some kind of small scale. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, plenty of people do, you know, work on the side and they, they do, you know, contract work. Um, and then, of course, you have to, you know, know your situation. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, you know, I was, you know, single. So, yeah. you know, if I have to eat beans for a week, I'm not putting anybody out <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm not supporting anybody but myself. Yeah. Um, and then it's just really having to test that, that, that how you can, I don't know how you test, how you can live with that uncertainty. Right. Um, and so, you know, you know, maybe it's like, having that sense of like, if this doesn't work out, I think I could follow this path. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then probably just knowing, you know, to be able to say like, Oh crap, I may, <laughs> this is not working for me. Sure. Um, but, but just also like um, to try to find, um, you know, even when you worry about stuff, when you think mm-hmm. about the things that you don't have to deal with, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not part of a bureaucracy and, you know, you don't have to deal with, with, you know, um, well, there's always kind of office politics, even in small projects, but I guess if, if that, that freedom really appeals to you, um, you know, and knowing that it's sort of got this balance, um, I'm not really giving any good advice, um, (laughs) except, um, you know, for what worked for me, you know, uh, talking to some people uh, uh, sure. who had done it before was a good sound check. Yeah. Um, you know, and they did give me some, you know, um, some solid advices about things to set up. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, some people say, Oh, you know, hire an accountant and other people are like, Oh no, just, you know, you know, set up a thing with, with some, you know, payment organizing system. So a lot of it is just knowing how you operate. Um, and, you know, if, if you're the kind of person who really wants to rely on someone to balance your books, you know, get someone. Um, right. You know, I know people who, you know, this is never my thing to do like speaking gigs, but, yeah. you know, they get people who book them speaking gigs so they don't have to go out there and, and do their thing. Nice. Um, so I don't know if I have a business model. Um, I, I've been, <laughs> I've been really lucky, Tim. And like, you know, I, I do think sometimes like, you know, this could all it could cave in sure um, but it hasn't so far and i guess if, if you can get energized by some of the uncertainty and it mm-hmm. doesn't you know get you paralyzed you know it's a consideration um you know and and this is not even thinking about like you know trying to make this decision in a pandemic you know yeah everything is is on the you know on the table what could happen yeah. Yeah. I don't know for sure. I, it's such an entrepreneurial spirit in education. It's, 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 it's somewhat rare. Like I don't run into it that often because, you know, like you said, you fall into that, that groove and you're like, okay, check comes every two weeks. I get my holidays. I, I book them out when I'm teaching. I know what my classes are. I could, I could schedule up my classes for the next five years, right? There's a lot of stability there. And yet I know that there are some people in the system that have that itch Right. And they're like, mm, you know, every five years that I need some kind of a change. And yeah, it's, it's a scary proposition, right? Yeah. And, and if, if you can, you know, think about like ways you could like test it out, um, although you don't really fully test it out until you've like made that little jump. talking very globally about it like it's easy and 
and um, it can really gnaw at you. Um, yeah. So, and, and I do not, um, I do not knock anybody. And, you know, I regularly consider about, wow, it'd be really nice to have a regular gig. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at some things I, I've applied, you know, for some things, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, for now, it feels like this time, like, especially compared to last year, like mm-hmm. it's way better. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The other one I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was the idea of storytelling and especially storytelling and education. Um, you, you and, and Clint are working on an H5P project with BC campus and, and you've, you've used some wonderful metaphors around the kitchen and, and kind of framed that whole process is in, in that light. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of storytelling when it comes to education. Oh, well, you know, I can launch into the like storytelling is the oldest form of communication back to the <laughs> way back when we were over a fire eating some, right, elk, right, elk right. Something like that, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, not, not to be glib, it is. And it became part of my, my wheelhouse, but it wasn't by accident. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I studied geology in school. Those were my degrees were, and I was a math and science geek and, okay. um, yeah, I like doing some creative writing, um, but I never really would think I would be talking or proponing, you know, propagating storytelling. Um, it really, like when I was working in the beginning of my career, I worked at the Maricopa Community Colleges in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a really brilliant director who was really kind of like, she would seed ideas. And, um, and ironically, her name was Naomi story. <laughs> so <laughs> Naomi story got me started on storytelling. And in the mid nineties, um, she sent me to this conference in Hawaii <laughs> of all things. And it was just a funny coincidence. There were people in, um, the film industry whose idea of storytelling was obviously their business. Um, there was this organized conference between people in the um, film movie business and some educators to sort of talk about the importance of storytelling. And I knew nothing about it. Yeah. Um, but there was this, this guy I never heard of um, uh, Dana actually um, who passed away a couple of years after I met him, who did this performance piece on stage. It was digital storytelling. And, you know, I had known of, of kind of the, um, the stuff that the center for digital storytelling works, which is revolving around, you know, producing a, a video that's, you know, a personal story and it's beautiful stuff that um, Joe Lambert and his crew do. And, and I've worked with them for years, but um, what Dana did was really different. He got up on stage on this uh, stool and next to him was this old wooden TV set that had a looping video of a fire. He had a digital fire. And on the screen behind him was not a PowerPoint. He had this like multimedia show um, that um, I learned later was Macromedia Director that I was using to produce some of my things. Um, And he would just use that as kind of like not telling the story, but just he would weave into it old pictures and things. Um, But that idea of something a little bit different that had some digital technology and and some nonlinearity, for some reason, it just really appealed to me. And so um, I kind of got, you know, interested in this idea about what, you know, the meaning of story does. And so, um, you know, in, in education, 
been like, um, like there's so many places like you can, you know, narrate, like every field has a history and personas mm-hmm. and people that you learn about. Um, but there's this whole idea of, um, of things that we do having like, um, I always use this, this video by Kurt Vonnegut with the shape of a story. And so, you know, a character goes through things that take them from good to bad. And, and it's that, that movement from up and down that makes things compelling. Right. And so, um, some of the ideas that work are, um, um, you know, all right, if, if we're in a class, like if the story of this class is like week one, we do this week two, we do this, then we get a quiz and then we get a final, like, you know, the full story and that's a good thing. Right. Um, but I think like people are really driven by, um, like some of the things that they can't anticipate. Like when, when you learn something you didn't, and you know, you didn't expect to, or you start going down a field of inquiry and it opens up all these doors into things that weren't on the plan. And you just start, um, you know, well, when I was in school and I'd go to the library, you know, and I'd find, you know, in the card catalog, the book I need to look at, I would start looking around and like, what's next to it. And, and how do you create those kind of experiences where people um, can sort of um, in the pursuit of what they're trying to do, um, find things that they didn't expect to that kind of, you know, latch onto their curiosity. And so uh, to me, storytelling has to appeal, you know, work with, it generates motivation and, and interest. Um, and the idea that like, you know, we're, we're moving on this trajectory towards something that we hope has a happy ending. Right. Um, but also there could be things that we don't anticipate. Um, and so uh, I just find that it has a lot of ways to come in um, subtly instead of saying like, well, now we're going to teach physics by telling a story. You know, it doesn't work that way. But right. th- there's some elements of storytelling, you know, in terms of, you know, a character and the trajectory of an arc and, and suspense mm-hmm. and, and things um, that, that I think can help in, um, you know, it could be the whole stretch of a course or it could just be the way you think about constructing uh, an activity. So, um, yeah. And I got involved a lot of things with like media and storytelling and thinking about the web as sort of a nonlinear storytelling, you know, platform. And so that was part of my, um, you know, uh, workshop and speaking gigs for a long time, but it it still factors in. So, um, yeah, it's less of a story thing with the the H5P project. Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly, in any of my projects, like one of the first questions is like, what's the metaphor? Like, what can we work with? What, what comes to your mind, you know, when you, when you think about this? Because um, for me, it helps frame, especially because I'm usually building like the materials or sites or uh, things that go with it. Like, um, I need something to tie it together besides the content. And so um, I always want to have a metaphor if I can get one. That's good. Well, yeah, it's that overarching um, support, right? As I, I look at it as one of those large tents where you, you don't have anything in the middle holding up the, the, the tent. It's really tension wires and all the infrastructure that you would see in the roof that, that holds that thing up. And we take it for granted that it's there, but we don't really realize the importance of it. Right. And I, and I'm, I'm learning more and more about the power of story, even in trades education, right? Where we come in and it's very technical and uh, very practical. uh, And yet weaving in little weird stories, even from my own experience, or, you know, you kind of make one up as you go, because you don't have a story to draw on. But 
it's, it's, it's been interesting to see how that connects even with some tradespeople. Uh, yeah. And I think that's like even more compelling because, you know, knowing the bit I know about the trades is like so much of what you're doing is like field experience and mm -hmm. things, things that you've did or you've encountered, like, you're not going to learn a lot of those things from a manual. Like no. what, what happens when, when you're facing a, a, a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think those are the kind of experiences that can sort of uh, take the content part and um, really make it meaningful um, for the students you're teaching. Cause they're going to have to be doing this. Like yeah. they're not going to just go out and um, only deal with a machine. They're going to have to deal with, with people and, and unexpected consequences too. Metaphors can go really sideways sure. um, or, or they can even get in the way. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's not like magic. And so um, you don't just like pull, you know, something off the shelf and say like, you know, we're going to turn this class into like, you know, a sailing trip. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it has to have some relevance and it has to have um, some meaning. And, and if my favorite example um, was a project where I got to know Ken Bauer, because I got to go to Guadalajara. Um, right with Tannis Morgan from JIBC who ran this project where we were doing professional development at the university of Guadalajara. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, when we got there for the project planning, they had done all the, you know, the, they gave like all the planning documents and the reasons that their administration want to do this project and sort of their goals and things. Um, and, um, you know, for, we were doing workshops and like, you know, Tannis from our Irish conversation, she sort of had this idea about studios as sort of like mm -hmm. a frame for doing a workshop. So where people get in a space and they're working on something together. And um, I like that. And so, I mean, we started our conversation with that, but, you know, I was like, cause I had to build websites and, and help design a lot of the materials. I, was, I said that in our first meeting, like it really helps me to think about a metaphor for what this project could be. Um, and we started with the studio thing and it didn't really resonate with um, our colleagues down there. They, they knew what a studio was. Yeah. Um, and so we started having this conversation and um, um, one teacher, why well, can't I remember her name, but she was like an anthropology teacher or art. She came, she said the Agora. And I was like, wait a minute, isn't that Greek? Um, <laughs> but you know, um, and, and when, you know, and when we were down there, we were in Guadalajara is this huge city and so many places in Mexico, you have this town square and yeah. at night, the town square is full of people. Like they're not, uh -huh. at, they're not at home watching TV. They're out socializing and, you know, yeah. trading things and, and singing and dancing. And so the idea of the Agora as a gathering place was not kind of the Greek building. It was the town square. And that sure. became that became the metaphor for the project. And it was like one of the best ones ever. And it didn't come from me. It came from the people we worked with. So if they can hand you the metaphor for a project mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, maybe when you're teaching trades, you know, the conversations you have with students, maybe you don't come in with a metaphor. Maybe it emerges, um, you know, from some of those first getting to know your students where you could say like, you know, I think this group might resonate with this kind of, um, you know, thing that to, to tie the course to. Right. Yeah. That, that's so powerful when the, when the metaphor comes out of the context that the people that you're, you're working with bring it up. Right. And 
Yeah. I mean, I, when you're talking there, I think of like the kitchen in most people's homes, the kitchen is like the heart of the home, right? It's whenever we go to visit uh, friends, we, we don't really sit in the living room, quote living room. And, yeah, you know, I, 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 I had friends and I dated uh, a couple of them where, you know, they had an official sitting room and you weren't allowed in there unless it was Sunday afternoon. And I'm like, what's the point of that? Like, that's just dumb. Yeah. So my, the house I grew up in, my parents, we had plastic on the couch. Oh you yeah. Didn't, you didn't sit on there. That's right. That's right. My wife's, my wife's uh, dad is Greek and he did the same thing, right? It's like plastic on this stuff. And I'm looking around going, okay, is something nefarious going to happen here that he needs plastic on the furniture? Like, I don't get this, but yeah. But it reminds me of the kitchen, right? Where That's where everybody gathers. Like you go to a party and, and that's where everybody goes. Right. Um, yeah. And you, you want to look for things that, and it's tricky to say like everybody, but something mm. that is pretty universal. Um, and so when Clint and I were talking in the beginning of that project, I mean, we actually started with like a music studio. Oh yeah. Um, and so, cause we wanted the idea of a space where people, you know, do that gathering, mm-hmm. but they're also um, creating or doing something. And it has a little bit of that um, unstructured or, um, you know, experimental aspect to it. Right. Um, and then it just, I don't know where it came from, but in our conversation, it's just like a kitchen. Like you said, everybody understands that. And everybody's house, I would think most everybody's house has one. Yeah. Um, and, and so that works really well. Um, and then that, you know, and I'm relatively like maybe the last 10 years kind of new to cooking um, and I really enjoy it, but it's experimental. Like you get a recipe and it's like, yeah, you can be very precise and you can measure everything down to grams. But to me, it's like, there's a lot of slop in there and, oh. and you can, and you can say like, you know, I don't have this. And, you know, you look up on Google, like what's, what's the substitute for evaporated milk and you find, or you just say like, I wonder what happens if I throw cinnamon into this. And so that idea of the experimentation and really the fact that it's messy. Yeah. Like, well, when I cook, like there's, flour and crumbs and crap everywhere. Um, but that sort of is the kind of like feeling that we wanted to have. Um, and so like, you know, that, that one worked out really well. We got lucky. Um, yeah, it's, it's so cool. Right. And like my, um, my godfather was my uncle and he was a red seal chef. Um, and like he got trained in the army and got out and went into hotels and then went into competitions and the whole deal. And he actually talked me out of going into culinary because he's like, you know, when all your friends are out having fun, you're working, right? Every holiday you're working, right? And, and so he talked me out of it and, but he taught me how to cook and I love cooking. And one of the, one of the hardest things for me to do is to provide somebody with a recipe of a dish that I've just done because I don't use recipes. Like I'll read it and I go, okay, Roger that copy. I got it. And then, yeah. And then I just go and do, I just create. And yeah, sometimes the, the most fun is when I had my kids, when they were younger, they'd come in and they'd help me and they're covered in stuff, but they're enjoying what they've made. Right. And I can, I can see that metaphorically happening out in education where if there's space enough to experiment, it doesn't matter what happens at the end, as long as they're happy with the dish that they, that they created. Right. In the sense of, you know, things are messy and not clean and, all that other stuff. Right. It's, uh, and I'm thinking just as like, you're talking about your uncle, like, like I really didn't even think about this, the idea of like mentorship and yeah. 
you know, you, you don't teach someone to cook by getting in the kitchen and pulling out your projector and doing a PowerPoint no, exactly. or giving them a, a textbook. It's yeah. like you show them and, 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 you know, in the trades there's stuff you got to do with your hands, right? Mm-hmm. You can only watch so many videos um, and see so many things in books um, to, to do things um, with dexterity that, um, that, that really are the way you, you learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you seen some good examples of mentorship in, in the educational process? Like you're talking about, like outside of trades, because there's a part of me that thinks have, have they missed that piece? Uh, yeah, I'll say, I'll speak for all of education. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there, there's, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's lots of, of study that have been done with that. I'm, I'm, I'm rolling through my memory to try to come across, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously approaches that you use when you're teaching. Yeah. 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 You have students work together. Um, yeah. Some, some of the things like, um, like problem-based learning where, you know, you're doing, you know, you're not just in a class, you're doing workout, you know, at a school or, or for a church or for someone else. And so you're applying, you know, you're learning in a context of helping someone out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, yeah, I would say that it, it's out there. Um, I would agree that it's, it's probably um, missing. Cause like, you know, you think about how do I create mentorship like experiences, um, you know, probably through some of the project work, um, you know, um, some of the last bits of teaching I've done um, in a class, I co-teach with uh, my colleague Mia Zamora network narratives. And so it's like, um, you know, kind of media based writing and, and fun web stuff. But we always we got this thing where we like to bring in uh, people to visit our class through like this. And so okay. we just for informal conversations, not to do lectures and a chance for our students to ask questions. And um, and we always had this idea of um, we wanted to talk to writers or um, film producers, like ideally in the place where they do their work. Um, oh, OK. So like. Um, the documentary uh, Brett Geller uh, about about um, uh, remix um, remix manifesto um, and uh, Brett's he's he's a Vancouver guy yeah um, but it, basically like he was sitting in his office where he does his film work um, talking about his craft so that was sort of you know that's of going out to the you know trying to bring in expertise which is something that that's commonly done um, but it'd be interesting to think about like. Um, you know, what happens, you know, besides like job shadowing, um, that kind of thing, like how can you create um, some activities for your students where there's like um, a mentorship component, you know, between them, um, you know, and so, you know, you have to find ways of who has like experience in the certain areas that they can pass on. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of creative work um, we could do there. Um in, in any fields, because, you know, um, you know, I, you know, most of the stronger learning experiences I can think were not necessarily me sitting in a chair watching someone, you know, in the front of the room. Um, yeah. It was when they, it was like, well, labs, you know, science labs, I mean, um, which gets more into the, you know, hands-on learning sure. maybe than the mentorship approach, but that's a very good question, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's what they always say when they don't have an answer, right? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. Pause, pause, pause. <laughs>
I'm just, I want to circle back a little bit. Cause I wonder, I wonder, do you think there was, do you think there was a lot of fruit and juice, so to speak, coming out of your tour through the States and Canada that built into this model of storytelling for you and, and metaphor? Cause I can imagine that you go and see all these different people and you're in these different places that has to have an impact on your development and how you're going to do things in the future. I would imagine. Uh, yeah. I mean, the storytelling was, was a piece of it. Um, I mean, the other is just my interest in photography. So I mean, okay. part of me, you know, part of the thing I wanted to learn was, um, I'm struggling to remember 2011 or 10. Um, it was just a bit like, it seems like so benign now in terms of like um, society and politics, but you know, what you heard in the news um, coming out of the political scene in the States um, was just like this real characterization about the country as a whole. And part of the thing I had was like, um, is that really what it is at the granular scale? Like when you meet people individually or in small groups, like, do those generalizations really pan out? Because I, you know, I wanted to think there was a lot more to society than saying like all people are like this or this is what America wants. And so part of it was just um, wanting to understand um, this land that I, I was living in right up close. And, and so um, I pretty much didn't aim for big cities. You know, I wanted to see small towns and, and countryside. Um, and, and, you know, up close and more than just like looking at the window um, right. from the highway. So um, some of it was wanting to um, trying to pick routes that were not interstates. You know, part of my plan was to avoid the interstate wherever possible. Like okay. You see much more interesting on state highways. Um, so, yeah, that, that definitely um, uh, played a scene. Um, I was doing this experiment along the way. Now that you remind me. Um, <laughs> A friend of mine, Zach Dow, who's at a community college in California, had told me about this thing called the pirate box. And so um, it was this method of taking a wireless router, like a $30 wireless router and running a firmware upgrade on it. But basically, you turned it into this um, wireless network um, that was publicly available in the space. And you joined it thinking, oh, free Internet. Right. But you weren't on the Internet. You're basically just accessing whatever content was on a little hard drive um, okay. that was attached to the thing. So it was like um, an ephemeral internet. And so um, when Zach heard about my trip, he said, you should take this thing around as an experiment and have it be like a treasure box. And so um, the, the dream of this was like, I could go somewhere and sit in a coffee shop mm -hmm. and people would see this network and they would join it. And there'd be like, an invitation to share media or things in, in the box um, or to look at things in there. It was a great idea. Not many people really are going to join an unknown network and then start right. looking around. You had to kind of um, you know, tease them into it, but I did take this out in all the places I visit and get to have people experiment with it. Cause it was kind of neat because when I came to you and visit, you know, you could see things in there. We could have conversations about them. You could put something on it. And then I take it away and it's gone. Like yeah. you don't have access to it anymore. Right. And so that was a little bit different way of um, thinking about like the network. Um, and, you know, I saw some potential for like, you're in places that don't have good internet access. Can you provide an internet like experience on this local network capability? And 
people doing that now with like raspberry pies and much more sure. sophisticated. Um, so that was kind of like an experiment I did. Um, I can't say anything like super grand came across about it, but <laughs> y- y- um, there was this moment and I was visiting this colleague, um, um, Cindy Jennings, and I could picture her living room that we were sitting in in Virginia. And she was someone I knew through the blogs and Gardner Campbell and whoever. Um, but yeah, when I put out my call, she says, yeah, come visit. It'd be great to have you. And so um, it just really struck me. Okay. This person, and I stayed in the people's homes, like, um, and I, I'm there and I have a picture of her sitting at her table when she's doing, she's doing the pirate box activity. And I just had this realization that um, like um, here we are and, Cindy is surrounded by everything that's important to her, like her books and her art and her family heirlooms and the furniture and her family and her cats. Um, And it was like, um, what a rare thing to sort of like Hmm. be amongst the things um, that are most like special to people. And, you know, that's not an experience you strictly get through, you know, this means. Yeah. Um, So, um, that kind of got to me like to the, the richness of, um, you know, the experience that we don't necessarily get digitally. Um, and you know, yeah, maybe there's some ways we do it more with, with video or, you know, but, um, it it just really struck me as, um, like things and, um, context for people. Um, and to think about like everybody that we're working with now in this modality is sitting in one of these spaces that you don't really can, you know, soak in like that sense of like, this is what's important to people and you know, getting away from the thing about like making students turn their cameras on, you know, you don't have to do with cameras, but like, um, you know, if, if I asked you, you know, um, you know, just in words to describe like the space you're in and, and why you have the things in your room, like, you know, you might ask me, why is there a rock sitting on your windowsill? And, you know, <laughs> Um, you know, what's the meaning? There's my wife's bracelet sitting. Well, I know that she got that, you know, when we took a trip together and like everything in there has a story. Yeah. Um, and so um, there, there's a sort of a storytelling approach of, you know, object-based storytelling. So people bring in an object, they start talking about it, but it goes yeah. into everything that goes beyond that. And so th- there's definitely a, a, a rich um, thing there. So, you know, when people come to you, you know, in trades, yeah, you probably want to know why they want to go into this field, right. Or what their interest is. Um, but generally, you know, say, you know, bring in, you know, um, I don't know, something from your family's toolbox, you know, and that's going to have a link to, you know, an experience, an uncle, um, a memory, um, something I built as a kid. Um, and so thinking about, like objects as like openings um, to um, understand people and for them to sort of like, um, you know, in in their own telling something about the object, something opens up for them. And so there's room there for some interesting activity. And see, I totally veered off from whatever. No, that's good. That's good. Because as as you started your story and and you mentioned your colleague and how, you know, she had all these important things around her and her books and furniture, her cats and family heirlooms. And she invited you into that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Like those things are important to people. And then when they open that up to somebody to come and stay there, like that's, that's a, that's a real deep invitation to, to just be in that space with them and to share that space. Right. And, 
it's, it's, there's something powerful about that. And when you talk about artifacts, um, and, and heirlooms and, you know, bringing in things like I've, I've got stuff that I've got from my dad that my dad passed away, gosh, 20 years ago. And there's a few things that I have from him and he was a tradesperson and, you know, he, he was born in Regina and grew up in Saskatchewan and, you know, he actually played for the Regina Pats, uh, for, for a couple of years. Oh, and, wow. And, uh, but he was, he was like five foot two. He, he, I always referred to him as a potato on toothpicks. Cause that's, kind of, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but there's, there's stuff of his that I have that I just will never let go because it's him. And, 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 and I wonder when we, when we start looking at storytelling and education to create space for people to feel that same way. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause oftentimes, well, not oftentimes anymore, cause I haven't been in the classroom for about a year and a half in trades anyway, but I used to walk down the street and there'd be people yelling at me from across the street. <laughs> hey, Carson, you know, and, <laughs> and I wouldn't remember them from anybody, but they go, Hey, I had you in my in second year, a couple of years ago. And, and I'm like, yeah. okay, that's, that's fantastic. So there's something very powerful about artifacts and storytelling and connecting, right? And there's another thing you come to think of it. Cause um, you know, I don't know if I specifically asked for this, but I remember so many things like if I came to visit, like, you know, I don't want to see like the tourist places. I don't want to go yeah. to the museum that everybody goes to. I want to see something kind of like unique and, and local about your place. So, um, and so um, I try in a lot of my project to find a way for people to sort of like, zone in on something that's really special about the place that they live in. And whether it's like the landscape or, you know, for me, it's the goofy llamas that I see when I walk up the road. Um, but, you know, I, I visited someone in Windsor and, you know, she took me down to Point Peely and was like, look, we have cactus. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the one, I don't know why I'm going to tell this, but I was visiting a, a teacher in Georgia Mm-hmm. She took me to her brother's farm. They had a family farm and they had these giant sheds. And basically um, there was a story that he used to be a chicken farmer. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with chickens is like, you end up with all these carcasses. Right. And, and so they're close to the Florida border. And someone suggested, well, you know what you do? You get yourself an alligator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the alligators take care of the carcasses. And he's like, that worked really well. And then he realized, wait a minute, there is like, a lot of money for people who want alligator skin. So he's an alligator farmer. Oh, <laughs> I, no way. I got to see the tour. Like I wasn't allowed to take pictures, right? Basically he's got these long farm sheds, yeah. like 10 of them full of alligators. <laughs> and like, how would I, I, I couldn't ask for that experience. Like, no. and, and so like, um, I think maybe what I'm trying to get is like, um, what are the ways you can create those possibilities? Um, for those unexpected experiences to, to occur, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, you know, network teaching gets you to some of that because you get to interact with people you might not normally, but like, just in general, like what can you do for, um, for um, people when, when you're teaching trades mm-hmm. that they can sort of, um, you know, they have an assignment, but there's a possibility that they could again, you know, look down the bookshelf sure. <laughs> um, just because they're curious. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Alan, this has been good. Thank you for spending the time with me. And, um, are you sure? I feel like I've been just blabbing randomly. (laughs) No, it's good. 
It's all good. I, I, I have a question though, Tim. Oh yeah. Go so, ahead. So I, I'm not going to make the, the Die Hard Christmas special. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. That's, uh, that's too bad. I'll be listen. I'll listen though, because I love Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Hey, I, I like to end off uh, most of my episodes with what I call the Fab Five. And uh, they're just five short rapid fire questions. And um, just to kind of get to know you a little bit better. And uh, they're fun. It's a fun way to end the, the program. You good? You good to go with that? I'm a little scared, but go ahead. Oh, don't be scared. It's all good. They're simple. Uh, <laughs> okay. First one, you mentioned you've been cooking for a while. What's your favorite dish to make? Uh, it's my pizza on the grill. Oh, okay. You make it on the grill. Yeah. With a, with a pizza stone. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. What's your favorite movie? Whenever my family wants to watch movies, mm -hmm. I always bring up these old movies. <laughs> like my, my, my family never wants to watch Alan's old movies. So I can't get them. <laughs> as a kid. I loved the bridge over river Kwai. I don't know oh, why where they, where yeah. they blow up the bridge in the prison yeah. camp. Yeah. I don't know if that's a favorite movie, but as a kid, I just, for some reason, I watched that movie uh, many times. A gazillion times. That's funny. Favorite band. The who. The who. Yep. What's your go-to tech right now? Actually, it's still HTML. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah. I, I love code. Oh, you mean like a, like a, a, a technology piece? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's always my digital camera. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's my passion. I, I can't stop. What kind of digital camera do you have? Uh, I have a Canon 7D, but okay. you know, quite often it's, you know, the phone is you now quite useful. Oh, <laughs> cameras and the phones now are crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm a little sad to say, cause I was really dismissive of them, but yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. Last question is who's, who's had the biggest impact on your life? Who's had the biggest impact on my life? Uh, well, well, it's everybody. <laughs> uh, uh, it's gotta be my mom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. I mean, there's, there's obvious reasons, but yeah. she's gone. She's in my heart. And uh, I, I had to, um, see, this is going to go into a story and yes, for sure. answers. That's okay. You go like as a kid and a young adult, like I was terrible. My mom annoyed me. Like yeah. she was. And then in the last 10 years that I know her after my dad passed away, we got to have such a rich, we got a friendship and I look forward to weekly phone calls. And so like having that realization, like way too late about what a unique person she was, um, makes me just want to like treasure memory more now than I did as a, as a stupid teen. Yeah. I totally relate to that. It only was with my dad and, uh, never had a really good relationship with my dad growing up. Um, not a bad one, but you know, it wasn't like, you know, TV stellar, um, and then when I turned 2021, 20, it's just like this light went on, like, oh, wait a minute. You're, you're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's that thing where you realize how much he changed, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, and then my dad got cancer and passed away pretty quick. And oh man, it's uh yeah, I, I miss him. I miss him. Yeah. And, and I, and you know, it was just like, I was just getting to know him. Yeah. Cause I, I just gotten married, just started my own little family and, yeah. So I, I hear you. Well, and the, the, one of the storytelling things that I came across um, that, that came from, I can't remember if it's Mexico or Latin America, but just like, like there's the physical death. Um, 
but then there's your, your real death is when your family stops telling your stories. And yeah. so, you know, this, this person had told me like in her family, there's like a mural of, of everybody's pictures. And so the family gets together and looks at the murals and they say, you know, well, look at the time, you know, huh. well, Fred did that. And so um, that keeps the person alive um, yeah. when you're still, when you're still talking about them, um, mm. you know, even to yourself. That's beautiful and powerful at the same time. Right. Yeah. I, I can believe in that. I don't believe in a lot of things, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alan, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Tim. This has been a joy and I'm glad we got this, this time together. And yeah, me too. I'll be tuning in for the Die Hard special. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Oh, 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 o